Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. And welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. Heart disease has been the leading cause of death in the United States for the past 100 years. One person dies every 37 seconds in the United States from cardiovascular disease. And even more sobering, 40 to 50% of people who experience their first heart attack die. Heart disease spares no age. According to the American College of Cardiology, 20% of heart attack victims are 40 years old or younger, a rate that has risen 2% a year for 10 years. Today's guest, cardiologist Dr. Joel Kahn, has dedicated his life to preventing and reversing heart disease. Dr. Khan has a unique, integrative, plant-based nutrition approach. His proven program, Young at Heart by Designs, helps patients live longer, feel younger, and stay younger. He's also a best-selling author. His books include Lipoprotein Little A and The Plant-Based Solution. Dr. Khan is an international lecturer and has a podcast called Heart Doc VIP with Dr. Joel Khan. He practices cardiology in Bingham Farms, Michigan. Dr. Kahn, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. It's actually a pleasure. I love your documentary, and we've got a lot in common. And I actually was online lecturing in New Delhi this morning. Uh, early in Detroit was afternoon in India. So uh, you did actually not overstate the ability to reach around the world. Very cool. Well, I do appreciate that, and I certainly appreciate you joining me. I have to ask you, why are so many people dying of heart disease? Um, well, it's an important question. And just to put it in perspective, you had some statistics. The average burden of death in heart disease in the United States is 23 to 2,500 a day across the United States. And we've had some COVID days that you've got to ask your question, how accurate is the accounting? But we've definitely had days at over 1,000 and a couple that maybe even 2,000 have succumbed. Um, many die, you know, because of heart disease, because of their altered immune system and weakened body from long-term heart disease. We have the traditional risk factors. We've known them for 50 years. Why do people get heart disease and die? Smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and the genetics of having family members that have had heart disease at a young age. We now can expand the list. You mentioned a book I have called Lipoprotein Little A, but it would expect science to progress. And we understand that there's more than those traditional, they're called Framingham risk factors. But to put it in really simple terms, forks, fingers, feet, what do you put your fork in? That really determines if you're gonna get heart disease or not. What do you put your fingers on if it's a cigarette, obviously, and what do you do with your feet? Are you sedentary, are you moving? Do you have fitness in your life throughout your life? Those three Fs determine about 85% of your risk of dying of heart disease. So. All you gotta do is line them up right. Even if your genetics aren't favorable, you've done a huge advance. 
you're an expert in looking at blood vessels and vascular biology. And as an optometrist, I'm always looking at blood vessels in the eye. In fact, I did a study and we saw that little microaneurysms in the capillary of the eye correlate with insulin resistance. Now there's 50,000 miles of arteries throughout the body. What kind of tests do cardiologists use to look at the health of the arteries throughout the body? Yeah, well, I trained as a traditional cardiologist specializing in interventional cardiology, invasive, catheterization, angiograms, stents, angioplasty. I've done thousands and thousands. So when you say I've been in arteries, I've been in you know, many, many people, thousands and thousands. And I have shifted more to be more of a vascular biologist now, measuring artery health outside the body. The traditional cardiology practice, which is not a bad practice, but it's an end-stage practice. You identify heart disease in the emergency room after a failed stress test, when there's angina tightness, leg pain on walking. These are signs of the end stages of disease, where I've shifted to look very early using technology like you've pioneered with uh, op uh, optometrist exams and other ways. Traditionally, cardiologists look at arteries by an invasive test called a heart catheterization, to some extent ultrasound of the neck, the abdomen, and leg arteries uh, to look for blockage. And uh, now more and more CT scanning, CT scanning in the last decade without having to put a catheter inside the body, uh, particularly CT angiography. It's been a revolution and it's a wonderful test, but it's still geared and used predominantly to identify the end stages. And in other diseases, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, we look for early stages by screening. We haven't adopted that aggressive approach in heart disease despite the statistics, and it's way overdue. We can help so many of those people that get sick and die from ever having a problem. You know, would you at age 40 like to know you're developing the disease so you can get serious with your lifestyle and your approach, but we wait till you're 55 in the emergency room and having an emergency stent. It's a, it's a system that has to flip to prevention. Why do you think our medicine is end-stage disease treatment instead of preventative medicine? Yeah, you know, it's, some of it is money. There's big money in bypass surgery. Many hospitals exist because of three things, bypass surgery, balloon angioplasty, stent cardiac procedures, and the Starbucks in the lobby. Those are the three reasons that they have enough profit to stay open and support pediatrics. Uh, oncology can be very profitable too for them. And, uh, you know, uh, we started out by, you know, identifying end-stage disease. Bypass surgery first performed in 1969 and angioplasty first performed in 1977. Now we knew lots about prevention back then and we know more now. I mean, if we could do it all over and hospitals open preventive centers, preventive health clinics, and shrink down the operating room, shrink down the cath lab, shrink down the emergency room, we've had a much healthier um, you know, hospital and clinic system, but it would revamp the finances. And frankly, hospitals probably can't afford to do that right now until the economic shift uh, and all. So that is one reason that we have this education, our boards, you know, and for those that don't know, to become a board-certified internist, a board-certified cardiologist, which, of course, I am, you have to pass an examination or you're not in the game. Well, there are no nutrition questions and prevention questions and very few vascular biology questions on the exam. So, 
you know, the curriculum is going to be formatted to up the chances you're going to pass your boards. Well, we need to introduce preventive medicine in the boards more. It's happening just recently and very slowly, but it, it will take over. We can't afford the pace of increased healthcare costs and the pace of you know, these incredibly expensive medications. And I'm not against them, but they should be shrunk down and used on fewer people. So you're helping, I'm helping. Uh, some of the medical societies are getting it. Even the American Medical Association talks more prevention and lifestyle than they used to. How are the blood vessels in the heart different than the blood vessels in different parts of the body? Yeah, uh, you know, they're not that different uh, in that uh, you can develop atherosclerosis throughout the body, although a person going for carotid surgery or stent may have relatively minimal heart disease. The person having bypass surgery may have relatively minimal carotid disease. It's, it's not, you know, although it's a widespread disease, there'll always be some disease. It is interesting why it's spotty. You know, the heart moves very vigorously and twists and torques. Uh, the arteries, particularly if you have high blood pressure, become very uh, serpiginous and difficult when we're talking about placing stents and other devices because they, unlike carotids and leg arteries, uh, are um, uh, very bendy and turny. And they're small, whereas carotid arteries, leg arteries are quite large, allowing easier access. So it's challenging, which is why standard medicine, you go see your doctor at age 50 or 45, they might recommend a mammogram, screen for breast cancer, even though there's no symptoms. They might recommend a colonoscopy, screen for a polyp, even though there's no symptoms. There's the assumption there's no way to screen the heart arteries because of stethoscope and electrocardiogram. Even a stress test does not show the heart arteries. And you'll only pick up abnormality if there's unexpected, silent, super severe disease. But indeed, with CT scanning, particularly ultrasonography of the carotid, you can pick up disease early so that you can wrap a preventive program around a patient. It's not expensive. In fact, the premier test to do this is under $100 and widely available. It's just we are slow to adapt preventive techniques, sadly, uh, even though they're so powerful and so helpful. Is computerized pulse wave analysis helpful? It's of help. I've had it in the clinic, and you can assess autonomic nervous system and vascular flexibility. There's a little bit more advanced way of, um, it's called endothelial function testing. Uh, I use a device called the Endopat that has a lot of research. Um, you know, inside, you mentioned 50,000 miles of arteries. Every artery has a single layer lining called the endothelium, like a wallpaper. Should be making lots of healthy chemicals like nitric oxide. This is an amazing body of science. 50,000 research papers, Nobel Prize in medicine. But on the average clinic visit, the word nitric oxide and endothelium never comes up. But it's the root cause of heart attack, strokes, erectile dysfunction, peripheral vascular disease is damaging our endothelium. So pulse wave analysis, the endopat, endothelial testing are not widely available. Even when you're seeing disease in the eye, of course, that is damaged endothelium and optic arteries. So we can do it now by blood work. We can assess nitric oxide production. Or you can just learn a little about it and say, I'm just going to eat a big salad every day. I'm going to learn to love beets and watermelon and arugula and pine nuts and you'll have a healthier heart and throwing away the cigarettes and the McDonald's would be a pretty good idea too. In the, 1800, in the late 1800s, there was virtually no macular degeneration, cancer, cardiovascular disease. Right. What has changed? 
Well, probably two things. One, we do live substantially longer, whether it's antibiotics or toilets or you know, soap to wash our hands and you know, social hygienic measures. And as we've lived longer, less you know, deaths at the time of birth and less childhood deaths from infections. And as we've lived longer, we've learned that we are not all animals, not all species. Uh, pigs are very resistant to atherosclerosis, for example, but humans are very prone to atherosclerosis. And we're not entirely sure why. There's an interesting feature, maybe why. Um, and that is most species, except four, make vitamin C. A squirrel, a dog, a cat make all the vitamin C they need. And vitamin is from glucose. It's a very simple liver enzyme pathway. And vitamin C is crucial for good skin, good vascular health, good hair health. If you're not eating a plant-forward diet of some kind and getting a lot of vitamin C, or perhaps supplementing with it, you are very prone to weakened tissues, and you may see it in wrinkling skin, you may see it in arterial disease, and if you're totally over the edge, you may develop scurvy and bleeding gums, even in 2020, you can see that. So there is our longevity, our predisposition to atherosclerosis. And then there's the way society has changed. You know, smoking rates hit a uh, very high level in the 1960s. They have fallen dramatically. They haven't fallen enough. Introduction of fast food, double income families where nobody has time to cook at home and everybody's carrying out and grabbing food in a bucket. You know, we've really outsourced the quality of our nutrition and we've paid the price. Excess salt, excess fats, excess sugar, hormones, pesticides, herbicides. These have clearly taken a toll. There's no doubt about it. And honestly, the solutions are fairly simple. I mean, don't smoke, get some fitness, start cooking at home again. Maybe the only silver lining in the pandemic has been hopefully not to order pepperoni cheese pizza for the family, but to actually take out a pan and a pot and make, you know, some pasta marinara with, uh, you know, some mushrooms, onions, and garlic, perhaps. Something very simple and inexpensive. Typically, how much vitamin C do you recommend someone take per day? And is it one time or divided doses? Yeah, it turns out to avoid scurvy, you know, bleeding gums, teeth falling out, ruptured blood vessels, which you can die of, and still is seen in some you know, terribly malnourished parts of the world, and occasionally in the United States, you need very few milligrams. So I, I think the USDA recommendation is about 90 milligrams a day of vitamin C, 60 or 90. I don't remember the exact number right now. It's a very small amount. You can eat one orange a day and easily exceed that. And that's a good idea to eat an orange a day. But there have been calculations that if we had in the intact pathway that we used to have, it's estimated about 40 million years ago, we lived in the jungle. There was leafy greens and fruits and vitamin C rich foods everywhere. There's at least the theory we lost the ability to make vitamin C because we didn't really need the pathway, perhaps. Maybe there even was some kind of advantage to lose the pathway, but it might be six to eight grams a day of vitamin C for typical human body weight. If you look at uh, some of the chimpanzees and gorillas and uh, great apes, they, those that can produce may produce in about that range. So Dr. Linus Pauling, PhD of great renown, Nobel Prize winner twice, he talked about that level of vitamin C, uh, which can be done with food, but it's going to take a lot of red bell peppers to get you up to uh, that kind of level. And it's not in meat, it's not in dairy, it's not in eggs. So when you eat a plant-strong diet, you're by nature, going to get much more vitamin C than a animal-strong diet. You know, we're all afraid of that massive heart attack that kills us. In fact, I had a patient yesterday, her husband came in, and 
this patient, diabetic, really didn't take very good care of herself, but she was in she's like 70, 71, and she just passed away from a massive heart attack, you know, in bed with her husband. What are some of the symptoms that people get and what should we be looking for? You mentioned a little bit of them before, but if you could kind of go yeah. over the symptoms, the signs, and a little bit of detail so we know what to look for, look for and not to ignore. Yeah. Generally a silent disease for a very long time. There are autopsy studies from Korean soldiers that died in bomb blasts and similarly in Vietnam and the Iraq war and up to 80% of arteries show some atherosclerosis in young Americans, 20, 21, 22. Numbers have actually improved a little bit because there is a bit less smoking uh, and more access to cholesterol and blood pressure treatment. But it's a silent disease for decades. That's why if you adopt, it's become popular to put butter and coconut oil in your coffee and make it a saturated fat bomb. It's called bulletproof coffee. Well, we know there's no science, but everybody's kind of cavalier, I feel fine. Well, heart disease and cancer are a decade plus process, and I'm not wishing that on anybody, nor do I know for sure that that breakfast mix causes cancer, heart disease, but I'd be concerned based on the pace of heart disease that you don't know that that isn't adversely affecting your arteries unless you're looking at back of your eye or uh, an ultrasound. So um, there may be no symptoms. The classic one is a man with erectile dysfunction. To have an erection, to be very honest, it's a ton of blood flow. You need that healthy endothelium. You need a lot of nitric oxide. Go smoke a cigarette, go have a cheeseburger, go sit on the couch and watch TV. You've just damaged your endothelium. So there's data for 20 years now, urology data, cardiology data, that a man experiencing erectile dysfunction. About age 40, 40% of men are having that problem already, 50% at age 50. You may be three, four years away from your emergency room visit, <clears throat> your heart attack, your stent, you could drop dead. Unfortunately, there's a prescription for Viagra waiting for you. There should be a prescription for blood work, check your blood pressure, perhaps look at your arteries directly rather than guess. That's a big one. There's a very interesting clue called a diagonal earlobe crease, Frank sign, because Dr. Frank in New York observed 50 years ago his patients with heart disease had a deep groove. Just look it up uh, on an internet search site. Frankly, if you look at Steven Spielberg's handsome face, you'll see a deep earlobe crease. I use his, his ears inappropriately. I haven't asked him for permission in most of my lectures. But um, Dr. Frank observed this, and then recent studies with CT scan says that's about 70% accurate. Now, if you're walking and your calves hurt, and you stop and your calves feel better, that's called claudication. That can be a clue. But that's a clue to very severe obstruction. Again, why are we waiting to the end stages of disease? But don't ignore it. If you're doing uh, work outside in the yard in the cold, you're having sexual relations and your chest gets tight or pressure or squeezing up in your neck, your jaw, your shoulders, that's called angina if it lasts two, three minutes. That's always alarming, but that is end stage symptoms. That's when your arteries are severely blocked most typically. Mini strokes where you lose your vision for a minute, you know, amaurosis fugax uh, symptoms. Again, usually a severely blocked artery. So. You know, I live by this credo, hashtag test not guess. You know, earlier identification of looking at arteries, a very famous European vascular specialist said the best test to predict atherosclerosis is to look at an artery. And I believe that. And that may be the eye artery, a lifeline screening of the carotid. Not a great value, but still it's at least an attempt. Or there is a CT scan of the heart to really identify heart disease accurately and early. But 
Uh, any of those other symptoms, like erectile dysfunction, earlobe crease, leg pain, chest pain, never ignore any of them. Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. We work very closely with cardiologists because we find microaneurysms. We see drusen in the eye, right. which are these little deposits which are correlated with cardiovascular disease, narrowing of the blood vessels. Sometimes we see plaque in the blood vessels. But you mentioned the crease in the air. How is that related with vitamin C? Yeah, exactly. And that's a theory that our earlobes are rich in, in fact, collagen. A lot of people are familiar with it now because you can buy every bone broth and every powder in the uh, health food store with, you know, collagen boosts. You can buy those made of animal products. There's vegan collagen capsules and powders. But the bottom line is Dr. Linus Pauling showed us to make rich and strong collagen, which constitutes our earlobes, our skin, our blood vessels. It holds our organs together. Your liver looks like a liver because of collagen. It's the most abundant molecule in the body, actually. You need vitamin C and you need lysine. Vitamin C we talked about already, and plant strong eaters are going to get much more natural vitamin C. Lysine is an amino acid that's in many seeds and nuts and lentils and chickpeas. And so a plant-forward diet often provides this substrate for more and better collagen health, better skin too, if you want to go for the glamour look. So it may be that it's a weakness of collagen that leads to the earlobe crease and simultaneously, and nutritionally, and simultaneously, there's a damage going on in arteries because they are weakened and a little spike in blood pressure, little argument with the spouse and the arteries are damaged and there might be a little erosion or plaque injury. These are theories, but that is the theory about the earlobe crease. Now, I've never seen an earlobe crease go away. You think it might be possible, doc, I eat giant salads and uh, apples and oranges and I'm packing in my vitamin C supplements, but to date, I haven't actually seen that unless somebody put some filler in their earlobe, and I don't suggest that. I remember when I was in optometry school, we had this book, this physical diagnosis book, which was pretty thin, and one of the signs they had was the earlobe crease. Interesting. So yeah, it's not really well known, and it seems odd, but in the last decade, half a dozen plus <laughs> research studies have confirmed it's relative accurate predictive. It's about 70% accurate if you see the earlobe crease, and you do the proper study, you'll find heart disease. Might be mild, but it's not 100% accurate, so nobody needs to get too worried if you looked in the mirror just now and see it, but get checked. Do you recommend that you supplement with lysine, and if you do, how many milligrams a day? Yeah, I don't put everybody on lysine because you can get it from food. Um, however, there is a particular condition that I do recommend vitamin C and lysine. There is an inherited cholesterol. It's the topic of my most recent book, and this is really important, called lipoprotein little a. Without being too commercial, I'll just show it because it's an awkward word. Lipoprotein little a, the heart's quiet killer. That's the title of my book. But uh, in 1963, scientists identified that this was a unique and very dangerous cholesterol molecule. Causes plaque, causes blood to clot, causes inflammation, which is the perfect storm of developing a heart attack, a stroke, or perhaps dropping dead. One out of every four of us inherit lipoprotein A. So if you have a simple blood test, LabCorp, Quest, your local hospital, but your doctor has to check lipoprotein little a, it won't show up on any routine cholesterol panel. 
you may have inherited this from mom or dad, particularly mom, dad, grandparents, aunt, uncles had heart attack, strokes, bypass, and stents. It's not clear how to manage it right now, just to cut to the chase. There's a drug in development that four years from now we may have in our prescription armamentarium. Uh, in the meantime, there's a couple natural approaches. Niacin as a vitamin lowers lipoprotein little a, it's an option. But there's a theory by Linus Pauling before he passed away that adding more vitamin C and lysine into your diet to increase blood levels can block or neutralize lipoprotein A from doing damage. Now, we only have a mouse model that confirms the theory. We don't have a human trial, but it's inexpensive, it's safe, and it may be good for your health anyway. So that's the one subgroup. When I see people with an elevated lipoprotein A, I recommend capsules or powders that have, um, to answer your question, about two to four grams of vitamin C and a thousand to fifteen hundred milligrams of lysine. I've had three patients who had uh, branch vein occlusions in the eye and the retina uh, that were between 28 and 40, and that the only thing that was abnormal was the lipoprotein little a, and theirs was over 200, 220. Yeah. Uh, one patient was 220, one was 230, one was 210. Yeah. And uh, it's an interesting observation. I had a patient in the clinic this week actually had the same profile, but I had not personally seen that clinical connection before. So it is, it is very interesting because I used to refer, when I would see a retinal hemorrhage or a problem, refer to the PCP and they would do just basic tests and it would always come back, well, there's nothing wrong with the patient. But if you don't do the right test, like a lipoprotein little a or, or a homocysteine, we, we're not gonna find out what could cause that or a fasting insulin or two hour insulin, what could cause that little retinal hemorrhage. I agree completely. And you know, it's not to point blame, but because homocysteine, there's no pharmacologic agent. There's B-complex vitamins, but those are over the counter because lipoprotein A, it might be inexpensive. Doctors aren't being educated, unless they're self-educated about some of these other risk factors. They're not testing for them. And I'm not you know, spreading ill will, but I look forward to the day that the routine panel is a little broader. It's frankly just a few extra things high sensitivity C-reactive protein for inflammation, homocysteine, lipoprotein A, you'll add a lot more and some of the insulin resistant uh, markers like fasting insulin and two hour glucose and insulin. You can pick up a whole host of people that were patted on the back and told you're fine when indeed there's quite a bit of metabolic uh, risk going on. There are places in the country, and I mean in the world on the earth where there's basically no cardiovascular disease. What are their diets like? What are their lifestyles like compared to places where there's a lot of cardiovascular disease? There's those little people of Crete. It's very interesting. Yeah, and you know, that, that prompted what we call the Mediterranean diet. There was a visit in 1951 by a prominent Minneapolis PhD, Dr. Ansel Keys, to Naples, Italy. And there was at the time, and still in Minneapolis, there was a rapid rise after World War II of executives having heart attacks. And Dr. Keyes was looking at factors why that might be, mainly nutritional factors. And the cardiologist in Naples, Italy in 1951 said, we never admit people with heart attacks to the hospital. And that prompted the investigation. What happens when you eat like an Italian, when you eat low in red meat and uh, generally relatively low in butter and you replace with extra virgin olive oil and lots of garden fresh fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes. Uh, so, you know, we do know that, um, you know, the diet is such, such a strong factor 
Um, and yet there are other regions, like you say, it's been estimated maybe half of the world on traditional ancestral diets don't see clinically much heart disease. Now, some of them have lifespans that don't match the American lifespan or the Japanese lifespan, but the Papua New Guinea and the Tahamora Mexican uh, Indian tribes, it's basically unheard of. There's actually some amazing autopsy studies in Uganda, which you look at traditional ethnic rural diets, which are tubers and beans and naturally low in fat. There's like no autopsy evidence of prior heart attacks in Uganda, one out of a thousand. Go to a United States autopsy series, you'll see, you know, 50, 60, 70% of people have atherosclerosis and many have had known or silent heart attacks. So it's, you know, genetics matter, but it seems to be exposure to our toxic food environment leading to high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, inflammation is uh, tremendously important. Do you do genetic testing for personalized medicine? And, and there's like 20, 25 markers that affect the heart. How important is, and how, how important is it? And how does that help you when you're helping a patient? It's interesting. I think we're in flux. There's not standard recommendations. Um, there was a time not long ago, I went uh, to an advanced clinic in San Diego three years ago. And I spent about three or $4,000 and my whole genome sequenced and whole body MRI, a very advanced approach to screening. Fortunately, everything came out okay. Although if you get your whole genome tested, you will find you've inherited something. I mean, nobody has a, a genome that predicts you no know, absence of all risk. It just doesn't happen. But you have to, now it is becoming uh, much easier. So routinely, if I check homocysteine, that's indirectly a genetic test because either you're methylating normally or you're methylating slowly based on genetics. If I check lipoprotein A, that's because of chromosome six and whether you inherited that gene or not. Um, you can check APOE. There are people concerned about a family history of Alzheimer's. They wanna know if they uh, have more risk because if both parents gave you a gene called APOE4, you may have 10 times the risk of Alzheimer's younger in life and you may wanna prepare, not your life insurance and your life, but healthier diets, healthier fitness, don't smoke, stay thin, get good sleep, the whole uh, kind of brain-friendly lifestyle. That's frankly a heart-friendly lifestyle. They overlap completely. Recently, I've got some panels where like you can do a swab of the cheek for about $250. You actually get about 30 cancer genes like BRCA. You get a report with 30 heart genes, including some cholesterol and some arrhythmia and some cardiomyopathy. And I think about 15 or 18 pharmacogenetics. What drugs are you most likely to have problems with? And for $250, that's not a bad deal. And uh, some of my patients have wanted to do that. It's just they take a brochure and send their own uh, buckle swab in. But I think you know, we're still a few years away of personalized and genetic medicine becoming a little bit more common. The price has definitely come down. And we do one for macular degeneration, a cheek swab in the office as well which was very popular for a while. And then there was some insurance coverage problems. So it became a little less popular. But I have to ask you about, about the Widowmaker. Yeah. You know, people hear about the Widowmaker, but what is that? Yeah, so I'll give a plug to a documentary that's out and people watch it. Then when yours come out, everybody watch yours, mm -hmm. which I've had the lucky access to view already. Well, there is a documentary called The Widowmaker Movie on Netflix, and I encourage people to watch it. It's fascinating, sort of a conspiracy idea. The Widowmaker is sort of a, a scary title. 
for a particular blockage in heart arteries that's at the beginning of your front anterior artery. It's called your left anterior descending artery. If you have a tight blockage there, which can be completely asymptomatic, and suddenly you develop a clot, you had an argument, it was cold out, you smoked a cigarette, obviously you do cocaine or crystal meth, you can drop that because it's such a big artery. So it's feared, but you also can have a heart attack or die from arteries in other locations, even small arteries. But the Widowmaker is the fearful one because it's easy to fix. Could be medication and lifestyle, could be a stent, could be bypass. And that has led to the idea we should screen more people with heart accurate artery tests, the best of which for the Widowmaker is a heart CT scan. And just if people aren't familiar, in your town right now at almost every hospital for maybe 75 to $100, you can lie in a stretcher, you can be pushed into a CT scanner at age 45, hold your breath for 10 seconds, and you go home. There's no needle, there's no injection, there's no iodine, there's no allergy. 75 to $100, used to be over 1,000, but not anymore. And there will be a report that comes out your arteries are not aged and calcified. You've got a calcium score of zero, a very good club to live in from 20-year, 15-year risk data. Or your arteries are calcifying and they're aging and you're suffering from this problem. Then you got to figure out why with all the testing and lifestyle valuation. And you can tell if most of the calcium's in the widowmaker position because the good reports will tell you which arteries have the calcium. So I'm a big fan of everybody considering strongly around age 45 maybe age 50. And if there's a lot of risk, if you're a type one diabetic or you've been a long-term smoker, maybe in, you know, in your early 40s, not much younger than that. It's very inexpensive. Same amount of radiation as a mammogram. And we don't hesitate too much for a woman to get a mammogram. So it's a high technology at a very low cost at a very high accuracy. Heart, artery, calcium, CT scan. But the documentary, The Widowmaker, tells you everything about it and why in the state of Texas, everybody is eligible to get one free at age 50. That's part of the story in that documentary. Have you seen calcium scores improve and what would need to be done to get, get them to improve? Yeah, it's a controversy. I see plaque disappear, heart disease reversal. I judge it mainly in the carotids. You can do an ultrasound to your brain with a digital software analysis. And because it's a big artery, it's a straight artery, and it's ultrasound. Once a year, you can come back in and I see routinely. Change your lifestyle, add a few supplements, get the numbers, and the plaque goes away. It's wonderful. It's a little harder to do that because I've got to send you for another calcium score, and I don't like more radiation than you need. There's very few reports out there. They're usually nutraceutical reports. There's a combination chelating nutraceutical that had a a peer-reviewed publication in 2004 of calcium scores going down. Recently from Italy, there's a very inexpensive supplement of herbs that's reported calcium scores going down. These are randomized studies, and I think of pretty good quality. I'm waiting for something that shows that IV chelation does it. It's reputed to do it, but we really don't have a study that shows it. There's a big VA-based study called TAC2 going on now. Maybe we'll learn that it does. We hope that whole food plant diets reduce calcium, but when the classic studies by Dr. Dean Ornish and Dr. Esselstyn were done, they didn't use calcium scoring. So we actually don't know. I rarely, I have seen it happen because of patients that I'm going for another study three years later and they've come back with lower numbers, but it's not really a goal on my list. I want your lifestyle good. I want your numbers good. 
I want your carotid arteries improving, and I want you to keep passing stress tests at an appropriate interval. And I'm very happy with that. Does the calcium score tell us about vulnerable plaque or non-vulnerable plaque? And if you could explain the difference. Yeah. So, you know, it's calcified plaque that shows up on a CT scan. White bone-like material in your widowmaker artery is not a good thing. White bone-like material in your bones is where you want it, not in your arteries. That's why we call it hardening the arteries. They, literally, and I've been inside arteries to place a stent, and they can be as rigid as a lead pipe, literally. I mean, the force we push in the cath lab to get balloons and stents in is because soft and flexible arteries have become you know, bone-like stiff. Um, so it, it's a problem, uh, calcification. But when you have a heart attack, we're not sure if it's that exact spot that has the calcium or two millimeters down where there's a nice, fresh, fatty plaque that's soft and maybe more vulnerable, as you say. We do know that the CT scan, the calcium CT scan, does identify vulnerable plaque. It might be a couple millimeters down the artery because people with high heart artery calcium scores clearly have a higher risk of stroke, heart attack, need for bypass, stent, and even death. So it's identifying the higher risk patient. But does it identify every spot? It, it probably does miss some. You have to inject dye or use thermal imaging or some other more advanced techniques that really aren't screening tests. So it may not be perfect, but it's darn close to perfect as a screening test. So at what number of the calcium score? Is it 400, 300, 200, 500, where you say you got to be on a statin? Yeah, well, it's a gradation where zero is the goal. And even zero in a one to 10, if you follow enough people long-term, there's a greater risk, 10 to 100. We usually break it down though, less than 100, 100 to 400, over 400, and a special group that's over 1,000. And let me just say, the test is called a heart artery calcium score. There is a number. There's a software that's been available for 20 years. You do this quick CT, the software program identifies how many pixels over your arteries have calcium, how much calcium in each pixel and adds it up. So you come out with a number, zero is the winner. So there's some pretty good data that it's another concept. There's something called number needed to treat. We've got a thousand people with a calcium score of 45. How many do you treat with a statin to save one heart attack? And these analyses have shown that with a calcium score under 100, it's very unfavorable actually to treat with aspirin and a statin. Sometimes you will, but it's actually unfavorable. When you, when you get higher, the numbers become more reasonable, the number needed to treat. Maybe you gotta put 30 people on Lipitor to save one or two a heart attack or a stent. Still, the majority, and again, it's during a 10-year study period. For most people, we're talking their whole life, of course. But um, So I'm not rushing to a statin. There's another interesting little pearl. There's a scientist at UCLA, Matthew Budoff, MD. He's a cardiologist. He's published 1,000-plus papers on CT of the heart. And he looked at a database. We had 1,000 people at UCLA with two calcium scores about five years apart. He identified the average number goes up about 20% a year. So maybe you went and your score was 100, then it's 120 and 145 and it's 170 and progresses. Um, if your lifestyle's better, it goes up slower. That's some indirect proof that exercise, diet, not smoking, maintaining body weight, blood pressure is of value. But if you're on a statin, the number in this database actually goes up faster. It looks like statins calcify arteries more rapidly than not being on a statin. But it may also drop vulnerable plaque. 
the soft black, the one that we theoretically fear more. So it's not a reason not to use statins, but I rarely use statins in people with, well, essentially never if their calcium score is zero, and rarely if it's a low calcium score. There's lots of natural ways to lower cholesterol without statins if you're not at much risk. I'll say finally, there's a cool website. If you've had a heart artery calcium score and it's come back, there's a website called astrocharm.org, A-S-T-R-O-C-H-A-R-M.org. It's a research project in Dallas from the University of Texas. You put in your calcium score, you put in your age, you put in your cholesterol, you put in your blood pressure, and it tells you over the next 10 years what's your risk of having a heart attack or stroke based on the best data we have. The number's very low. Statin's not going to lower it more. The number's moderately high, and that's about as good as we have right now for risk prediction. You may well benefit from a baby aspirin, a statin, lifestyle program, always lifestyle program. So sometimes they, they add dye with the calcium score and they do it together. Does yeah. that any benefit, any extra benefit to spend the extra money for the dye test? Okay. Yeah, so that, that's called a CT angiogram. And when it's of the heart, because you can do it of the carotids, of the legs, of the kidney arteries, but it's a coronary CT angiogram. We call it a CCTA. It's been coming on strong for about 15 years, and now it's really refined. There's actually some new software called HeartFlow. So they have to inject you with iodine dye. You'll get hot for 20 seconds. It causes the radiation dose to be a little higher. It causes the expense to be higher. At least $1,000 could be a larger hospital bill for it. Usually prescription, usually insurance coverage. Well, insurance isn't gonna pay for it if you order it as a screening test. And most people don't feel it's appropriate as a screening test. Little risk of iodine allergy, little risk of iodine in kidneys, little risk of the extra radiation. But it undoubtedly shows more because you can measure the calcium score. But since you actually are seeing the arteries, you'll see soft plaque, hard plaque. The report might come out. Your widow maker is 25 to 50% blocked. So I'm not rushing on most of my patients as a screening test. But for example, they've got risk factors. Somebody sent them for a stress test that came back somewhat abnormal. I might do a CT angiogram. So I'm saving them an invasive catheterization. And in that setting, their insurance will pay for it. It requires a steady low heart rate. So if there are nervous Nelly in a CT scanner and the heart rate's going 90, the pictures are not worth the effort. Or there's tons of skip beats. You gotta work a little on those features before you send somebody. But it's a breakthrough. In my emergency room service at my hospital, I uh, am on staff at, rather than a stress test, we will often do the CT angiogram on chest pain patients in the emergency room. And boom, it's normal, they're home in an hour. It's saved staying overnight and going through all the expense and hassle of the traditional approach. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. 